great hymn of victory is what many scholars call this passage right here at the end of Paul's great essay on resurrection, the great hymn of victory. I think there might not be a more comforting, more hopeful, more inspiring passage in all of literature, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature, than this great hymn of victory that St. Paul ends his incredible essay on resurrection with. There is a reason this passage is read at so many Christian funerals. It is our singular hope. So what more important time to be reminded of it than we come face to face with our, with our most terrifying enemy, death. To believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to believe in our own resurrection. And when we are in that moment of saying goodbye to loved ones, nothing is more comforting than this eternal truth. That death lost. Life won. Our goodbyes are but temporary good nights until we see each other in the eternal morning. Because resurrection, not death, is the final reality. And St. Paul not only ends this his essay on resurrection with this great hymn of victory, but he also uses it to effectively and bring to a powerful and fitting conclusion his entire letter to the Corinthians. He is going to add some post notes in chapter 16, which we will look at before we completely wrap up our series on Corinthians, but this homily of his marks the end of his truly exceptional and unequaled composition that we've been exploring. Actually, I was back in my notes this week to, to draw some things out, and we actually started 1 Corinthians in June three years ago. So we'll be finishing up about, well, we actually won't, because we probably won't look at Corinthians again until we're into the new place. But anyway, so before we look at the content of this magnificent hymn together this morning, which N.T. Wright says, I love this definition, has the sustained excitement of celebration. The sustained excitement of celebration, which it does as you were reading it, which makes it even more fascinating that this is why we read this at funerals, at Christian funerals. Death for us is, is celebration at some level. It is the realization of our singular hope, right? But before we look at the content, let's just consider once more some of the brilliance of Paul's writing ability that he has on so many different levels. Some of us have really been, been amazed as we've looked at this through, through the years, okay? So in the first essay that Paul used to open this letter, he wrote an amazing hymn to the cross. We looked at that probably three years ago. Way back in chapter 1, he wrote this incredible hymn to the cross. And here, as he's closing out his letter, he ends with this hymn to resurrection. So Paul perfectly balances the two pillars of the Christ event. Perfectly. And by doing so, he's reminding all of his readers, reminding us, by way of structure and placement alone, okay, that everything he has written in this epistle, everything, hinges on and is substantiated by the work of Jesus Christ. Everything. There's nothing in this epistle, epistle that stands alone apart from these two pillars of the Christ event, the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's a brilliant piece of Right? how Paul has put together this magnificent piece of writing. It's not just the letter he whipped off. He composed 
this letter. Further, which I find fascinating, in the opening hymn to the cross, so way back in the beginning, he speaks of revealing a great mystery. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And now as he's wrapping up the letter, he comes back to this mystery. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. His role as an apostle, as the writer of this great epistle, was to reveal to us the mystery that the Christ event is our redemption. It is our redemption. And because God, in His Son, defeated death, so we too are no longer subject to death. These are the things He wants us to take away from this incredible letter. The Christ event is our redemption. And all that that means. And finally, one more piece as we consider just the way Paul has composed this letter. Okay? Bailey points out that this homily is in a three-section format. And we've looked at those structures before. And I'm not going to spend the time this morning breaking this one down because we've looked at it before. But what I want to point out, and that Bailey points out so amazingly, there are only four other homilies in this letter that are like that. Okay? And among them, the hymn to resurrection, which is this one, the hymn to the cross, the Lord's Supper, and the homily on love is that we looked at. Which, again, that's the Christ event, right? Crucifixion, resurrection, the Lord's Supper, and love. Love is the center of everything. And Paul chose this very special sort of format to put these together. And then there's this little detail that is both exceptional to the composition of the letter, but also to content. Paul uses this phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Paul's introduction to the first essay, so this is the opening of his letter, Paul used this phrase four times in verses 2, 7, 8, and 10 of chapter 1, our Lord Jesus Christ. Then it disappears in the entire epistle. He doesn't use it again until now when he comes back to the end of his letter. He brings back this phrase, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Bailey on this. I love Bailey's insight into what this could mean. Paul returns to this exact phrase and in the process adds one final stitch, joining his discussion of the cross to his reflections on resurrection. It was our Lord Jesus Christ who dies on the cross, and it was our Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. If Paul's readers can reflect deeply on those four words, all will be well. Those four words can cause all the problems discussed in this epistle to disappear. The Corinthian divisions will disappear. Their community-destroying sexual irregularities will stop. Their offenses to the consciences of others will come to an end. Their worship wars will be over, and their denials of the resurrection will be no more. The resurrected Jesus is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And when He has His rightful place in the center of our lives, both as individuals and as a community, <clears throat> When he has that, when he is truly the focus, all things tend to fall into place. Because when he's the focus and he's in the middle, it's really hard to start rationalizing some of the things that we tend to do. So this hymn truly is a remarkable and fitting closing to what is a most magnificent piece of writing.
Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I hope, you know, we've looked at this together for so long, I think we've only scratched the surface. And I hope we continue to engage this letter on our own over the years, because it really is. That, that, I, I'm not sure if there's a piece of literature that's finer than this letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians. So anyway, but it's the majesty of the truth that he reveals in this hymn that surpasses even the brilliance of this composition. And I want to suggest, if we were to embrace the reality that he is revealing this hymn, it will change our lives. I really believe that. I really think that. We have been talking about living resurrection, living the divine yes as we've explored chapter 15. And last week, we saw how Paul intended us to understand that resurrection living begins now, not just after we physically die, but begins now, and is defined as life led by the Holy Spirit. Resurrection living is knowing the truth of God in our flesh. God in our flesh and allowing Him to have His way with us. And the beautiful way He desires to have with us is to give us His perspective. This perspective. Death is swallowed up in victory. For that perspective, this perspective frees us to truly live life to the fullest. Think of it this way. What really lies behind all our fears? What lies behind all our insecurities? All our constant attempts at self-preservation? All our living small? Death. Death lies behind it all. Whether it is conscious or not, whether it's, it's the total death of our complete beings, or death of small parts of us, or the death of loved ones, dreams, plans, families, work, finances, etc., etc. Death is behind all of our fears. Behind all of our paralysis to live free and live large. So then, to understand and truly believe that death is lost, truly, that is, that it is no longer our mortal enemy, that it is but another form of sleep from which we will wake as we do from our nightly sleep is probably to have no fear. I mean, who fears going to bed at night? Unless you're nine months pregnant, you know you're going to get up 20 times to go to the bathroom, right, Sarah? <laughs> but no one fears going to bed at night. None of us fear putting our kids to bed at night. My daughter's going off to college. I can still remember reading her books and putting them to bed at night. No one fears that. We're going to wake up. So to truly believe in the truth here, I think, can free us from fear. At least the kind of fear that paralyzes us. and limits us. And this is what the Holy Spirit, God in us, offers us. Isn't it funny? We fight surrendering to the Holy Spirit all the time. But all He wants us to know is everything we want anyway. To live fearless, imaginative, limitless, gracious, beautiful, generous, hopeful lives. That's what we want, I think. 
And that's all the Holy Spirit wants us to do. And it happens because He's trying to give us this perspective. God in us, letting us know. And you know, this is really the story of Pentecost. Today's Pentecost Sunday, which is a really cool... We, 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 we come Pentecost, Memorial Day, and we happen to be in resurrection. It's a little cool serendipity. Anyway, Pentecost is a story of the Holy Spirit coming and taking away our fear. Now, I know it's often positioned in such a way that we read the story and we think all the Holy Spirit wants to do is make us the next Billy Graham. Right? I get that. Because the focus of the Pentecost always seems to be that, you know, Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 souls answered the first great altar call, right? Mm -hmm. Which is maybe why some of us don't surrender to the Holy Spirit because we don't want to be evangelists. We don't want to end up as the bullhorn guy down on the street corner. But let's rethink the story of Pentecost for a moment. Why was Peter, why was Peter the one who stood up and talked? It could have been any of the eleven, but Peter, <coughs> taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to them. Why? Why was it Peter? I think it was Peter because that is the most dramatic testimony of living Holy Spirit-led lives, of living resurrection, of living free from fear. See, what was Peter doing the last time we saw him in Jerusalem? Denying Christ? Denying that he even knew Jesus? Hiding from the fact that he was part of Jesus' group? He was afraid of a peasant girl and what she might do to him if she knew who he was. I mean, it's really, the final days before Christ's death, it's really the clearest picture of who Peter is. A man of fear, just like all of us. And for Peter, his fear is centered around what our fears center around, the death of his reputation and the death of his life. See, when Jesus was still being vetted as the possible king who would destroy Rome, and then when Jesus was being celebrated as the triumphant Messiah entering Jerusalem to overthrow the empire, Peter was in the center of it all. His reputation and life well preserved. But as that fantasy slipped away, and Jesus became public enemy number one, Peter slipped away. Fear. It's not that he didn't love the Lord. Of course he loved the Lord. Just like we, we love our loved ones. And we love others even though we treat them so horribly. Fear. Fear. But a mere 50 days later, just a mere 50 days later, in the midst of the very people he was terrified of, the same city that he was behind the locked door in. Peter stands up and not only identifies himself as Jesus' follower and friend, he tells everybody else they should do. That is fearless. And that can only be explained by this perspective. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There's no other perspective that can cause us to live fearlessly. Because death creates fear. Peter... Holy Spirit filled 
was now living resurrection, living the divine image. So, where does our fear most control our lives? That's the question we should ask. What do we run from? What do we hide from? What do we slip from? Slip away from? And try to be honest. A lot of our actions are simply fear-based reactions to what's going on around us. How are we limited, paralyzed? How are we less than the glorious persons we were created to be? I think embracing the reality of resurrection can help us. And I suggest that is what the story of Pentecost can mean to all of us. A life filled and surrendered to the Holy Spirit can raise us up above all of our fears, just as it did for Peter some 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit's not trying to make us Peter. He's trying to make us who we are. He's trying to help us overcome our individual and very specific fears so we can live resurrected lives. St. Paul said, the victory is ours. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's ours. It's already been accomplished. It's done. It's done. It is now for us to live into it. He said in verse 30 and 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The work of the Lord. In John's Gospel, Jesus said, The work of God is this to believe in the one who has sent me. To believe. To trust. To have faith. Not in some mental way. Not some simple... This is a whole life positioning that we believe this. You know how you believe an open fire is really bad for little kids? and you act accordingly, you know? Like you really believe a loaded gun is really bad for little kids and you act accordingly? The work of God is that you believe in Him who sent them. To believe that Jesus is the way and we too can follow Him. To follow Him in loving others even our enemies, forgiving those who deeply wound us, giving generously to those who are in real need, being kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled, peacemakers, patient. You guys must know that list. I didn't make that list up. Right? Galatians gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit is trying to accomplish in our lives. And when we just don't go along with that, it's, it's not the Holy Spirit's failing, it's we're going in a different direction than the Holy Spirit's trying to take us. To believe the way of Jesus and to follow Him, to be lovers of God and man, altruistic, 
not counters of cost, builders of the kingdom, and conquerors of death. That's why I started again with this video we've watched throughout our studies on Corinthians that was epic until Rich threw my face in it. But I love that video. It's so... We are kings and queens of promise. That's what we are. And that line in that video where the age of man is over, that's all death means for us. And we rise king and queens. As Witherington says, the resurrection of Christ did not immediately lead to Eden regained. But there is one place where the new life and God's agenda should be manifest on earth, in the behavior of Christians. Paul expects his converts to manifest and bear witness to the new creation already begun in the midst of the old. But, please notice what Paul, Paul calls the Corinthians, my beloved brothers and sisters. Do not lose sight of this. Those of you that can remember three years ago, if you like me, can't remember yesterday, but that's okay. If you can remember three years ago, we talked about this a lot. Fee comments. Despite his misgivings over their theology and behavior, and despite their generally anti-Paul stance on so many issues, from his own point of view, they are ever his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Paul's calling them beloved is important for us in two ways. Number one, even when we are not manifesting the new creation that has already begun in us, we are still God's beloved. There is nothing as important as that truth. And I am committed to, if nothing else happens because of Cana Community Church and however long God keeps us going, that is the one thing I want come away with, and I hope everyone that ever comes to Canaan comes away with. God loves us always. Amen. And if we are living under theology that you think you need to be a certain way for God to love you, sanctification, and we'll get into this eventually, but this whole concept of sanctification in Christianity, I think we have backwards. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit bringing us to a place where we know more and more and more our need of salvation mm. and how much God loves us no matter how dark our lives are. The second we are coming to this table because we think we deserve it, we have stepped out of what I believe the entire Bible is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died because he loves us. Paul says to these Corinthians, some of these people hate him. And we've looked over these years all the things the Corinthians are doing. My beloved brothers and sisters. Love changes our lives. The Holy Spirit wants us to know one thing today. It's how incredibly loved we are by God all the time. And here's a second reason this is such an important statement for us that Paul makes, my beloved brothers and sisters. It's evidence that Paul himself is allowing the Holy Spirit to control his life and make him 
like Christ. I am sure he would have liked to have called those people anything but beloved brothers and sisters. <laughs> anything. But nope, he is controlled by the Holy Spirit. My beloved brothers and sisters. Paul is living the divine yes. He is living resurrection lives. Christ has given him the victory. Let's on this Pentecost together determine to join Paul. Not in being something we're not, but in allowing the Holy Spirit to have his way with us and make us the glorious persons we were created to be and truly live resurrection lives. Amen. Amen. A clean heart, O oh God, let me be like you in all my ways. Give me your strength.